Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, a place for interdisciplinary conversations in the broad world of business research. My name is Andrew Jennings, and it's my pleasure to be your host. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, leave a rating and let other people know about the show, too. And if you have ideas for the show, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. All right, time for the episode. Our guest today is J.W. Verrett, Associate Professor of Law at George Mason University. We'll be discussing his new article, Disgorgement Accounting After Lieu versus SEC in Securities Enforcement Cases, which is forthcoming in the Albany Law Review. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. J.W., welcome back to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Great to be back here, Andrew, and great to watch this podcast grow. Thank you. And before we were hopping on the recording, I was talking about my excitement about this kind of law and accounting intersection in the paper. You're, of course, a lawyer, you're a law professor, and you're also an accountant. So you wear both hats professionally. I wondered if you could talk about this paper uh, and the intersection of law and accounting. Why is it that accounting and security seem to be two fields that are just really intertwined oftentimes? I've watched at George Mason Law School, I've watched a number of my colleagues find some success bringing together law and economics. And one of my colleagues told me, no matter what you do, if you're just studying law, the more you can do law and something, the more you can jumpstart your career. And I thought my background is in accounting and accounting intersects with law in a lot of ways. Let me explore issues at the intersection of law and accounting. Also, part of it is just the fact that I have four kids and being an academic was a lot easier in my 20s. In my 40s, I've got the kids and needed to grow my full portfolio of work. So I needed to grow my consulting career and really honing in on forensic accounting and the issues at the intersection of corporate law and securities law on the one hand and forensic accounting on the other hand is a way to grow my consulting work at the same time as growing my scholarship and looking at issues where I can put energy into both and they can be mutually synergistic rather than a distraction from each other. This intersection of these two fields has been a great opportunity to do that and help lawyers talk to accountants and accountants talk to lawyers. And each side of that debate, it fascinates me, each side of that debate, they're having just a little bit of knowledge of the other side can really help their professions. So sitting at that bridge, I'm finding to be powerful so far, and hopefully it'll be the primary focus for the rest of my career. Before we hop into the core of the paper, I want to level set with some terminology for the listeners. When the SEC brings enforcement actions for potential violations of the federal securities laws, it has a menu of sanctions that it can pursue or that it can ask a court to impose. This paper is focused on one form of sanction, disgorgement. Could you define just what is disgorgement as a sanction and how does it maybe sit within the full menu of sanctions that the SEC can pursue in securities enforcement? cases. Disgorgements are just a return of the wrongful profits. I think generally speaking, it's probably fair to say that when courts tend to look to a disgorgement remedy, it's because they have some difficulty estimating the exact amount by which plaintiff was wronged. And so the courts will say, you know what, we know how much the wrongdoer got. Let's just take that from them and give it back to the plaintiff. That's probably an oversimplification, but that's how I view generally the disgorgement remedy. In Securities enforcement actions by the SEC, the disgorgement remedy forms, I don't know, maybe a third, sometimes half of the awards the SEC receives. So we're talking about potentially billions of dollars a year that are recovered under the SEC's disgorgement remedy, disgorging 
an award from a wrongdoer. So at a high level, we might say disgorgement is a remedy designed to make sure that if you do a bad thing, you don't get to keep the profits of that bad thing. And there might be other sanctions on top of it. But one form of sanction is that you don't get to keep your ill-gotten gains. This brings us to a really significant recent Supreme Court decision around securities enforcement and disgorgement, Lou versus SEC. Could you talk to us about the issues and some of the facts in Lou and the court in that case, reached a concept of disgorgement as being limited to quote unquote net profits. Could you talk to us about that holding? What's perhaps an alternative to that holding? And what are some of the maybe normative and deterrence implications for that holding, which says that you can deduct expenses from your illicit revenues when it comes to calculating disgorgement and securities enforcement cases? Lou versus SEC was part of a series of cases looking at the SEC's disgorgement and remedy toolkit a series of cases where the Supreme Court was skeptical of the SEC's expanded powers. And so there was some strengthening of statute of limitations. There was some rolling back of the disgorgement remedy. For my purposes, what I care about in all of that scrum is the holding in lieu. And when the SEC seeks a disgorgement award, they can only obtain the net profits of the wrongful activity. So the disgorgement remedy is limited to the defendant's net profits. This is a phrase that for the Supreme Court was a throwaway line, but one that as soon as I read it, the reason why I wanted to do an article was looking through the eyes of an accountant. You look at that phrase and you think, my God, how do you define net profits? How are you defining that Supreme Court? And they probably didn't think much about it because they're lawyers. I said, I could write a book trying to figure out the many ways you could try to define net profit. And at the very least, I can write an article starting to think through some of the ways you could define net profit for that purpose. So that was the motivation for the article. The first time I read the case, I said, I I need to do an article about that. This is a great issue that brings together law and accounting. As we're thinking about this holding in lieu of limiting disgorgement to net profits, could you walk us through some examples of what net profits might look like in this context? You're doing something that is illegal, you're violating the securities laws, but perhaps you're engaged in some activity that isn't violating the securities laws, perhaps you have some legitimate expenses. Could you just walk us through maybe an example of what that might look like? I would note that the ways to think about this and the ways I think about this in the article are in a few different types of boxes. One is an individual defendant. Another is a corporate defendant. Those two circumstances are going to be fairly different. And then it can become more complicated when you go into fact patterns that involve a corporate defendant with a bunch of subsidiaries and maybe one subsidiary is the focus of the wrongful activity or when you get into FCPA matters. So those are the different kind of fact patterns that are important to look at. The test generally, I would say you need to apply in this. And this pulls in not only the basic holding in lieu, but some of the other reasoning around it and that comes from cases interpreting lieu or pre-lieu cases that were incorporated into lieu that were consistent with lieu. I would think of it as a two-part test. Of course, there's always a two-part test. First, you have to measure what revenue is included, what revenue is disgorgeable. Let's count the dirty revenue, basically. What revenue was tainted by the fraud versus revenue that was legitimately earned, unconnected to the fraud. Now, one thing we know about step one is that it's not a tracing analysis. So it's not like you have to look at the cash and the assets on the balance sheet, try to figure out what came from where. It's a question of just looking at the revenues and counting the illicit revenues. If they've all already been distributed as earnings, dividends, for example, it doesn't matter. That's irrelevant. So it's not a kind of a tracing analysis. Another thing that we know is that earnings on the proceeds of tainted revenue are not disgorgeable. 
So if you took the illicit revenue, you put it in a money market fund and you got earnings for the company, that is not disgorgeable revenue. So step one is what revenue is disgorgeable? What revenue is tainted revenue? Then step two is what expenses are deductible from that revenue? This is another phrase the court used to describe this part of step two is what are the legitimate expenses that did not further the fraud? These expenses must have some value independent of fueling a fraudulent scheme. So this expense deduction process walks a kind of a tightrope. The expense needs to be connected enough to the disgorgeable revenue that it can be deducted against it, but not so connected to it that it furthered the fraud and is thus not deductible. So that's the two-part test. And just as an overall, if you're talking about individual defendants, it's fairly straightforward. The revenue is, is much more straightforward to try to calculate. The expenses are much more straightforward. They tend to just be things like brokerage fees. And if there's an insider trading disgorgement, the fees for the broker on the insider trading would be deductible against the disgorgeable revenue. When you have corporate structures, it becomes a lot more complicated because you don't always allocate revenue and you don't always allocate expenses under GAAP to the locus of where they originate. Sometimes you don't allocate overhead in a large corporate structure. And that's really where my paper steps in and says, maybe we should for purposes of disgorgement. But hopefully that two-part test gets us started in thinking through how to do this. In the spirit of accountants having something to learn from lawyers and lawyers having something to learn from accountants and you stepping in to bridge that gap, I wonder if you could talk about the framework for calculating disgorgement under lieu that you offer in this piece and how lawyers in particular, whether they're enforcement attorneys with the SEC or whether they're their defense counsel, could you maybe walk us through how lawyers might use this framework or how accountants helping lawyers might use this framework? The first thing that's going to happen is you're going to be negotiating with the SEC. Most things negotiate, most things settle. Most of the time when we learn about an action against a company, we learn about it as part of an SEC press release that announces a settlement is completed. That's a black box. And this is where that tool will mostly be used. It obviously can be used in litigation, in the event of litigation, in the event someone invites the SEC. They would use, I think, a report outlining what they think are defensible expenses to deduct from any disgorgement award. After they are found guilty, they would use a report to try to rebut the SEC's assertion of what the disgorgement award should be. In lieu of that, pun intended, this is a tool you're going to use as part of the settlement negotiations. It's something that you'll bring to the SEC. I think it's important to bring to the SEC in a, a report prepared by an accountant that suggests what reasonably deductible expenses should be in determining a disgorgement award. So that's generally where I think this will come into play is in those behind the scenes negotiations in advance of a settlement with the SEC. We've talked thus far about disgorgement as a securities law remedy. And I wonder whether this holding in lieu might apply or offer some learning to the disgorgement remedy in other contexts, for example, criminal disgorgement or disgorgement in other civil regulatory contexts. My question there is, does lieu generalize to other disgorgement contexts and does your framework in that light generalize to other disgorgement contexts as well? I think it would be fair to say that it does. Yes, because the Supreme Court came to this determination that disgorgement needs to be limited to net profits. They came to it relying on a couple of, I think they cited two or three different, essentially restatements of the law of remedies. 
And to me, that's the best guide to figure out what to do here. And that's what it did in the paper. There's a whole section of the paper that just walks through the entire remedy section on disgorgement in these two or three treatises that the Supreme Court cited. And I said, all right, the best way to add some meaning to what they've said and put some meat on the bones of this basic statement they had is use as a guide the treatises that they used and that the Supreme Court cited to in lieu. And walking through those treatises on the disgorgement remedy, that drew from a lot of different fields outside of securities law, particularly intellectual property law. For some reason, that was a particular focus of the disgorgement background. And throughout there, the abiding principle from the treatises on disgorgement is that only net profits are disgorgeable and that legitimate expenses are deductible from a disgorgement award that runs through the intellectual property background that runs through the basic fraud remedy history in the restatement of remedies and the other treatises used on unjust enrichment and such. So yeah, I think it is. it would be generalizable as a general principle, sure. Are there any key takeaways you'd like listeners of this interview or readers of the article to have from the paper, particularly if they're perhaps somebody from SEC enforcement? I I believe that there are probably some folks at SEC who listen to this podcast, or if they're defense counsel, I suspect that there are some of those as well who listen to this podcast. What takeaways would you like the general reader to have? And what takeaways might you like some of these practitioners to have from the paper? I think the basic takeaway is that in calculating disgorgement, you are not limited to the net profits in your gap accounting filings with the SEC. The net profits in your 10K and 10Q, it is a lot more complicated than that. And you can harness the tools of cost accounting to allocate more overhead than you might otherwise expect to a reasonable disgorgement award. And for more of the secret sauce than that, you're going to have to give me a call. Our guest today has been J.W. Verrett, Associate Professor of Law at George Mason University. We've discussed his new article, Disgorgement Accounting After Lou versus SEC in Securities Enforcement Cases, which is forthcoming in the Albany Law Review. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. J.W., thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much for this opportunity. I really appreciate it, and I love the podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard today, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, rate the show, and let other people know about it too. If you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.